All right, welcome to Jed Banger's Ball. I'm your host, Jed Mayhew. Today on our show, we have my buddy Jonathan Rice, uh, who, you know, I met him years ago, and he's come in and out of my life a bunch of times and in a bunch of weird ways. And, you know, you have these friends, you know, I consider him a friend, that you, you don't really see him that often, you know, but you like him, and then when you do see him, you know, you, you remember why you like him, and, and, and I like Jonathan Rice. He's a really funny guy, uh, and we had a really good talk, and it was good to have him back in my life, in the studio, on the Jed Bangers Ball Show. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Jonathan Rice. Headphones like everything else. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Headphones like everything else have gotten so fucking complicated that, uh, yeah, it's not like, well, we are, yeah, we're recording. I mean, it's not like, uh, I used to have just regular ass headphones that you just listen to. Yeah, of course. And now you have to turn them on. And then you forget, then like you go and like make a sandwich or whatever, and you forget to turn the switch off, and then the battery dies. Yeah. I need a uh, flex alert warning to turn my headphones off so that I know I'm not running out of the batteries. Hmm. <laughs> I thought, yeah, we're recording the show. What are you talking about? Oh, it just started, huh? Yeah, it started. That's how it starts. Uh, just to throw you off. I thought you were Australian when I first met you. That's understandable. Why? Well, it's because my accent is supremely muddled. Yeah. You know? Is that, a, is that a Scottish thing? I mean, I think it's just a product of growing up between Virginia and Glasgow, Scotland. So that it just, like, they, it became its own thing. Uh, Connor Oberst once said to me that I'm the only man that he knows with three fake accents. <laughs> what's, what's, what's the third one? I don't know. It's uh, you should ask. He's him. heard. He's heard all three though. He's uh, should, there's probably the a one. drunk one that comes yeah, out. There definitely is. Uh, you were, uh, you were born in Virginia though. That's right. You're, so you're American. I am. Yeah. I have. A, I hold a British passport as well though, in case things get a little hairy. <laughs> but so Scotland's part. Of, so if you're born in Scotland, you're British citizen. Yeah, you're part of the United Kingdom. Uh-huh. You know, uh, despite our best efforts last year to right have a referendum. Yeah, where where did you swing on that one? Were you for, for Scotland or no? What, it, what you guess, wanted to be your own country? I guess the uh, I'm answering for you. The, <laughs> the popular kind of uh, catchphrase of the movement was "head versus heart," where. Uh, the media kind of spun it where the common sense decision would be to remain within the United Kingdom for economic reasons and the heart, uh, just which desires uh, freedom from our 
ancient colonial oppressors. Right. It, it's the same in here. They say uh, if you if you're uh, a Republican before you're 35, you have no heart. Yeah, that's probably true. And if you're a Democrat after 35, you have no brain. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, they seem like they're both just pretty much the same nowadays anyway. And if you vote for Donald Trump, then you have dog's balls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bollocks, they call it. What did, John, you're from. what did John Stewart say the other day? Since, like Him insisting that people not make fun of his hair is comedic entrapment. <laughs> What do you think about this whole Donald Trump thing? Like, I mean, I'm just fascinated by it. Now, I, I haven't really. I mean, this is where I this is where I feel like the head versus the heart thing because obviously my head is like, don't vote for Donald Trump, but the heart is like, what happens if Donald Trump? Because we're we've, we're spinning in such a f- fucked up direction as it is. Uh-huh. What if he is like the Antichrist that needs to be awoken to get? To, to just obliter- obliterate this whole shit pile we've made. I think that <laughs> Donald Trump is like the logical conclusion <laughs> of American politics in a, like in a corporate media environment. I think that's what you get at the end of the day. It is a reality show now, the whole thing. Right. And uh, this, is, this, is, this is what happens. You get this kind of garish casino owner at the center of politics, and you have CNN and all these networks... You know, I think I saw Anderson Cooper like, why is Donald Trump so popular? Maybe because you're fucking talking about him all the time and asking why he's so popular. Right. Meanwhile, you've got one of the most worthy candidates, in my view, in recent decades, like Bernie Sanders. I thought you were going to say Marco Rubio. No. Well. (laughs) (laughs) No, I agree with you. That's the thing. So here's the thing. I'm totally with you on this Bernie Sanders thing. And, you know, my parents are from, they live in Louisiana, and so they're not with me on this whole Bernie Sanders thing. Right. But, uh, and, you know, teach their own. We just don't discuss it during dinner or whatever. It's fine. Uh, but I'm with you on this whole Bernie Sanders thing, uh, you know, as opposed to Hillary Clinton or whatever. But, but why, but he's not getting, he's not getting any press now. And, and, and the, and the chances are it's going to be Hillary. Yeah, I don't even think there's a chance. I think it's preordained and it's just, it's just going to happen. So, yeah, that's the thing. Is like my heart probably wants Bernie Sanders, and my head probably thinks Hillary Clinton, maybe, and my dog's balls <laughs> are voting for Donald Trump. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I'm trying to. I I did first meet you though at the Sasquatch music. I didn't think you were Australian then. I just I don't think we really talked. That was my 21st birthday. That was your 21st birthday at yeah. the Sasquatch Festival. Yeah, the day I met you, yeah. Was it the first Sasquatch Festival, or was it... Oh, I'm not sure. It was... Yeah. Uh, it must have been... Coldplay was the headliner. Were they? I'm pretty sure, because I said hi to Gwyneth Paltrow backstage. Oh, wow. But maybe that was a different day, because I remember, I remember the Postal Service playing, because I was there with them. Right. Um, and I remember the Shins playing, and that's when I first saw you. Right. Right. Um, and you were naked. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I, and, I'm, and I, for the folks out there in Podlandia, um, he and I, when I mean he was naked, I mean that he was naked, <laughs> and yeah. uh, I, was on stage with the Shins very briefly yeah. in very cold weather. Yeah, thanks. Um, see, I think about that sometimes, like like 
as I get older. I mean, that was like 10 years ago, right? At least. Yeah. At least. Uh, I think 11. 11 years. See, and you know, it's like you do these things when you're younger and then you think of, they, they haunt you sometimes and you think about it like, oh my, what was I thinking? And then I, I you know, you like watch the Woodstock film or something and you see this naked hippie running around and, yeah. the, and that's like some guy, that's probably like some, that guy probably owns a bank now or something or he's definitely someone's father. Yeah, I would, yeah, I'd, I'd put money on that. And, and then I think, you know, well, fuck it, you know, if Donald Trump becomes president, like, who the fuck cares if you got naked and ran around at a music festival? Well, I mean, that, like, you know, that's living, right? Also, but also, we're just, we're minutes away from, like, ball sack recognition technology, you know? <laughs> Where uh, you can't just roam around music festivals with your, your cock and balls out. Uh, because, you know, soon people will be able to be like, you know, double tap. And it'll recognize, you know, whose they are. And it'll prevent you from gainful employment. <laughs> well, that's well, that's the thing. It's like, so I worried about that. I was worried about the, that whole thing with the, the <laughs> getting a job. And then 10 years, I, don't, I still don't have a fucking job anyways. So, I, you know, like, it, does, it, what's the, it doesn't matter. Is that where you met? That was your first date with Jenny Lewis. It was one of our... <laughs> Major first dates. Did she have second thoughts as far as, you know, like which guy ch- to choose? I don't think so because I, I think I did it right. I splurged. I, you kept your pants on? Well, um, I mean, at the festival, at the I festival, did, yeah. unlike yourself. Right. Um, I remember I had always wanted to stay at the Edgewater Hotel mm-hmm. in Seattle. Seattle, yeah, yeah. Where the famous hotel where the Beatles... Stayed and also Led Zeppelin uh, fucked a woman with a shark there. Right. Although I have heard that it was actually members of Vanilla Fudge that did that. It was members. There's a photo because the, the guys from Led Zeppelin are like looking through the window like high school boys. Oh, there's actually a photo of it. I didn't. I thought it was had always been like maximum rock and roll. Here I don't think there's an actual photo of the act being done, but there was like some photos being taken of them like hanging out together. And there's like a photo of like I think it's like John Bonham or someone's like peeking through the window, like and like they're about to like get the get the shark out. Wow. So you got you get your, you got a hotel room there. Yeah, we got. I got. A I room stayed there with for... my parents. Oh, really? Yeah. You could no longer fish out the window when we stayed there. Um, right. But I remember... Was it because of that? that they, is that why they banned it? That was the uh, shark that broke the groupie's back. Sharknado. <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe it was because of overfishing. I don't know. <laughs> um, we stayed there and... The Postal Service hadn't played in a second. I think that was... They were rehearsing. I was on tour with Dido. Dido? Yeah. What were you doing on tour with Dido? I was opening for her. Really? Acoustic by myself. Yeah. Uh, I, for some reason, she liked my music. And she was very sweet, very lovely. But uh, I did feel rather mismatched Uh with her, with her audience, her audience was like a little bit perplexed by me, I think. Right. Um, but so I flew from L.A. to Seattle, got a room at the Edgewater, and the, I remember the Postal Service were rehearsing, and I remember meeting Ben Gibbard and Jimmy Tamborello in my hotel room at the Edgewater, and Gibbard to this day, he's like, man, I really mad-dogged you the first time uh, I met you, because he, he felt very protective towards Jenny, you know? Yeah. Um, 
And he's like, who is this kid with three fake accents? <laughs> <laughs> but then we got along rather famously. It was a lovely weekend. That's a great story. Um, so getting back to, you, you, you come from Virginia, and then you went to Glasgow, and you grew up going back and forth high school because your, your family's like, the, they're like in the government or something, right? They're not in the government, no. Um, they're military. No, neither. Uh, they're, they're definitely soldiers. <laughs> I mean, soldiers of fortune, maybe. Got it. Um, no, my dad's always worked kind of in international affairs, uh, primarily for years as a speechwriter. Yeah. Which led him to work for the World Bank and then the International Monetary Fund. And, uh, so, but sometimes we would go back to Scotland and he would teach at the university or write a book or something uh, on economics and stuff like that. So he's never actually shaped policy or anything like that, but he's always been in and around it internationally. Yeah, my question is, given that, back, like, where, how did you find music and stuff and start picking up instruments? Through my father, definitely. And also just kind of uh, through, the, through Scottish kind of party culture in a way. And I, what I mean by that is there is kind of a thing in Scotland and in, and in Ireland as well where everyone's kind of expected to have a little tune that they sing when the guitars come out or, you know, when everyone's had enough to drink. And sure. And everyone's kind of expected to, to do something. Like tell a joke or something. Exactly. It come, comes yeah. around like a round robin yeah, sort of situation. it might be a story, it might be an anecdote, it might just, or it might be a song. And I feel like everyone has that except for American white people who are just so nervous and anxious around each other that we can't be bothered to learn anything to share. Yeah, I found that. Because you go visit like a like a black family or like a sure. Latino family or something, and they they have like these interactions like if, that are amazing, and then you go to like visit your family, and everyone's like, "I'm going to go to the movies, I'm going to be in my room." Yes, yeah, certainly melo- melodically, I can hear in some of my own like work uh, some reverberations of like old Irish songs and old Scottish songs that my grandmother would sing, and then I would learn and things like that. Uh, so it probably came from that, and in my house there was just. I, th- I guess my dad was a record collector. There was tons of vinyl in the house. There was tons of records, and there was definitely like a reverence for music in the house. What kind of like what kind of music was he into? He was really, really into the seventies singer songwriters, which were of his generation. Right. He was a singer songwriter himself. He like made some some demos. Had a beautiful voice. Um. So lots of like uh, Steve Forber was big in our house. Chris Rhea was big in oh, our yeah. house. Oh, yeah, Chris Rhea was big in my house, too. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. You yeah. don't really hear a lot of people say that. I know. I always get... I always... Sometimes I'll hear Leonard Cohen. Or I'll, mm. sometimes I'll hear Chris Rhea, and I'll think it's Leonard Cohen, or vice versa. You know, and then I'll be like, hey, this is Chris, this Chris Rhea. And then someone's like, who the fuck is Chris Rhea? And also, it was a joy as a kid to go to the Barras, which is... Uh, means barrows, like wheelbarrows. It's like Scottish slang, the barras. Was, it's like basically the, the Scottish black market in Glasgow uh, where you could find basically anything from, uh, you know, kind of maybe one-day-old produce to really rare records. Um, and I remember getting out-of-print records at the barras that you could get. And I remember American Stars and Bars by Neil Young was out-of-print. Sure. On the Beach by Neil Young was out-of-print, but you could get them there. You right. get like a... 
like a bootleg a, version. Yeah, of it? absolutely bootleg. Yeah. How were they? How I mean, how were they bootlegging it? Were they pressing it in Scotland like themselves, or these were CDs? Oh, okay, CDs. Okay, gotcha. So they were just like dubbing. Uh, what do you, what do you you duplicate a CD? I don't know what the fuck you do with it. You, you throw it away it. now, but like you, you, you burn it. To, you burn you burn a CD. That's right. You burn, burn a, disc. a you burn the disc. But were they like with like hand drawn covers, or were they like they were f- poorly photocopied and often black and white? Right. Um, so yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. What in what year was that then? This must have been well for me. I was born in the mid eighties, so this was probably like late eighties, early nineties. So they were still doing that up till that point. Was it just just out of necessity, or just to like save money, or just to because they didn't fucking care, and they're just like we could sell whatever we want. I think there's always been kind of a culture in the UK and throughout Europe, really. I mean, there's always there's a, there's a black market in every country, sure. really. But uh, there was always this, like, they call it, in, in Scotland, there's a phrase for it called off the back of a lorry. Like, where'd you get that? Oh, off the back of a lorry. Like, it's kind of, sure. you know, kind of Goodfellas style almost. Cigarette truck. I remember my, my friend's dad owned a very famous pub in Glasgow, and a guy would come in and he would have a big coat on, and there'd be watches in there, and there'd be, you know, just things that he happened to acquire, and <laughs> people would haggle for them at the bar. And I'd be under the table, like watching it happen. And so, when when did you like? You, when did you pick up a guitar out of all this? Uh, I think I got a nice cheap guitar, probably when I was about nine years old. Did you get it at the barrows too? No, I didn't ever buy an instrument there. No, I think I got my first guitar. From a little strip mall in Northern Virginia, right? And you just started playing. You, you taught yourself, or my dad taught me the first like fifteen chords, which are I only use five of those now anyway. There's fifteen. I thought there was three. <laughs> <laughs> I'm way off. So you start playing guitar and stuff, and and you and you got you're going around like it's more it's more of like a for fun, right? Like oh yeah, thing sure. At, at this point, yeah, like, I was very focused on my education, and because my dad and Mother had come from relative poverty in Glasgow. There was, he had worked so hard to get us this great education, primarily in the states. Um, what were you studying? Oh, I would just mean like, you know, regular. Oh, just edu- regular. Yeah, I never high went, school. Yeah, so you were going to be a gym teacher. No, I, I was very, I was very like dead set on being a human rights lawyer in Central or South America. That was like my goal in life. Right. I don't know what I, you know. I, I, I was radicalized by... No, I think like, that, I think that your indie singer-songwriter thing has done way more for the world than any of that would have ever. Well, there's no way of telling. <laughs> you, I, I'd like to think you're right. Um, but so I guess it was always understood that I would pursue higher education and um, just, I don't know, become a productive member of society, I guess. Right. But I had a strange kind of shift in my mood when I was 17. And I was in a band uh, in high school and started writing songs. And I met this guy who had an independent record label whose name was Chris Coip in Northern Virginia, D.C. And he had gone to my high school, which was an all-boy high school in Washington, D.C., called Gonzaga College High School. Um and he, I almost went to Gonzaga College in Spokane. Oh, okay. Is it a Jesuit school? It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's named after St. Aloysius Gonzaga. The there you go. Jesuit. Um, so he offered to put out an EP 
of my first like six songs and I was like oh this is great and then I basically just had an epiphany of sorts and was like I'm not going to go to college I'm going to Heartbreaker by Ryan Adams had just come out mm-hmm. um, on Bloodshot Records out of Chicago and when I heard that record I was like I didn't realize that people actually listened to music like this I thought I was the only one who loved Graham Parsons records and sure like uh, records like that, that that Heartbreaker was so clearly influenced by because I would imagine where you were living and where you were growing up there in D.C., Virginia area. And how old are you? 31? 30, 32. You're 32. So, I mean, did, were you getting like some of that like D.C. like hardcore like or like discord sort of stuff? I know or? it would make me sound cooler to say yes, but honestly, I was totally oblivious. Got it. it. Well, no, I mean, it doesn't. That's what I'm saying is I feel like maybe in, in a way for what you're doing, it's better that you you didn't know about it because that's why it, you All of were my, able to do what you did. My musical but, world was an inner world. I right. I, I, like, I had very few friends that liked the same music as me. Right. It was very, like, it was like the peak of uh, Dave Matthews and Fish and stuff like that, and kind of almost like prep, prep school cult music culture. Right. And that's what the, the people around you were listening to. Oh, oh yeah. Absolutely. But you were more into this sort of, like... The Birds, yes, Graham Parsons. So I, I, I was aware of the Beechwood Sparks in high school. Gotcha. And Heartbreaker by Ryan Adams and, and Ryan Adams, and that kind of clued me into the fact that there were people who were influenced by the same records that I was. They were just they were far, far away, and I had to go find them. And you know, I could ask you and lead you into these questions because of the audience, but I do know these things about you, and I know the Beechwood Sparks and stuff, and and. So you you knew of Beachwood Sparks in high school, yeah. And then, but you didn't know them pers- oh, personally no. until oh, you no. got out here. No, I really thought, especially from their press photos, that they were magical cowboys. <laughs> well, I mean, Farmer Dave, Dave may or may not be. He's, he absolutely is. He is okay. He's well. We, then then I'll go with you on that. That he is. I wasn't sure. Yeah, I mean, and I remember. Basically, I made a deal with my parents um, because I had basically switched. I had switched on them. I was this very focused, academically driven kid, and then I just decided to become a musician. And it was it was terrible for them. I mean, they 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 hated this idea. And so I moved to New York City when I was eighteen, two days before nine eleven. That's wow. absolutely true. September 9th, I drove up there, and. Basically, I had made this deal with my folks that I would. I, my plan was to get a major label record contract within one year of living in New York City. Right. That was like I was like, this is something that I can do, you know. So don't worry about it. <laughs> you really were like insular as far as like yeah. what you thought was going. Like you created your own world. I I did. So I was like, well, I'll just do that. And right. um, biz- rather bizarrely, I did do exactly that. And. Uh, I was able, within the 365-day limit that was placed on me and that I placed on myself, um, the demo that I had made with the guy, Chris Corp, that I described earlier, made its way to Warner Brothers Records to this A&R guy whose name was Perry Watts Russell. Yeah. And he really liked it, and he flew me out to Los Angeles and signed me. Right. And so I got a record deal with Warner Brothers and started making records for them. And at that point, do you reach out to 
the Beach with Sparks guys? I remember telling Rachel Howard, who worked at Warner Brothers at the time, and uh, is a really cool chick, how much I love the Beachwood Sparks. And she's like, well, I know Farmer Dave. You should meet him. And so I went over to his house in Silver Lake, and there he was, and I couldn't believe it. L.A. is one of those weird places, though, where like, it, if you get here and you, you have this idea about some people or someone like Farmer Dave and you ask around and someone could say, yeah, he's over there behind that tree <laughs> yeah. drawing a picture of yeah. his girlfriend with a box of crayons. Yeah, and there he was in Silver Lake, and I kind of wormed my way into his life. And I'm still very dear friends to him. Yeah, of course. With him to this day. And so, I mean, was that like, when you get signed to this label, you're like, I want to like hire these guys to be my backing band? Was that the idea? Did you The Beachwood Sparks? Yeah, or whoever. I mean, I mean, I know Farmer Dave becomes... They were almost, by that point, they were, I think, right when I met Dave, he was beginning the all-night radio phase of his life, which is still one of my favorite records that any of my friends have ever made. Right. Um, I like the song where he uh, starts off with him talking about how he's hanging out outside your window. And then he's when you realize that the bicycle that he's on has wings. <laughs> this is the first line of the song is, hey, look outside your window. No, up here. <laughs> exactly. He's not down below. I think that's actually a song about a scientist who tried to design a bicycle that flew. I think it's rooted in reality, that song. I believe it. Um, but wh- when when you signed to this major label, though, wh- what label was it? Warner Brothers? It was uh, Reprise. Reprise. Was, yeah, part is, of Warner. Yeah. yeah. Did you feel, like, pressure immediately? Did you feel... They were always so, so cool to me. Um, I mean, did, I, I'm, that's what I'm asking. Did you come in and be like, I want to work with these musicians or did they have people they were like we're gonna say because you're young kid. how old are you 21 at this time you're 20 yeah i was 20 yeah yeah so did they have like people that they were like we're, this is who you're gonna work with or did Not you really. have ideas of what you wanted to do i guess there was some there was a period of them figuring out oh we probably can't actually sell this very well but before they i mean that was after i signed um i think i was signed in the aftermath of songwriters like John Mayer and Jason Mraz and those kind of, I don't know what wave of singer-songwriter that is, but those kind of guys were getting deals and having hits. So I think they maybe saw me like, well, he could be our guy like that. Right. And then I handed them a record that was basically like a rather complicated-sounding song cycle that I made with Mike Mogus out in Nebraska. And I think... They appreciated it on an art- artistic level, but I think commercially they were they were like, oh, boy. And what happened with it then? Um, well, it I don't think it ever sold a ton, but it certainly it got me on the road and it got me on tour, and it ended up becoming kind of a favorite of music supervisors. Right. Because that was kind of the beginning of that era where musicians were no longer so precious about having their music on the OC and Grey's right. Anatomy and ER and all these things. So I, I was able to get songs on that, which was enough to keep me on the label and make more records. Right. Because we had uh, the last show we had on was uh, uh, Justin Gage. Oh, yeah, I know Justin. Aquarium Drunkard. Yeah. And he said, I said, oh, I'm going to have Jonathan on in the next show. And he said that uh, 
you were in this band with for an Elvis movie that he was doing the music supervision for. That's true, yeah. And Ron Livingston was playing Elvis. Yes. It's kind of a subplot within this film that this filmmaker, uh, Eddie O'Keefe, made called Shangri-La Suite. Yeah. And Eddie O'Keefe now is, he's, his brother is in the Orwells. That's right, yeah. Which is on Autumn. T- ah, I'm starting to figure out what's going on here. Uh, which is Donald Trump is controlling all of us <laughs> <laughs> like an octopus with his hair down into at the back of everyone's necks and like making all of this shit happen, revolving around the Jed Bangers ball pot. Okay, now I know what's going on. All right, thank I just I was wondering what the hell was going on, and now I know exactly what's going on. So, anyways, you, t- you mentioned Dido. Yes, I did. <laughs> and that being a weird show, but it, when this first album came out, you, you opened for like REM and some other people too. That's true, yeah. Like, Around the same time as the first album, yeah, I was playing the first kind of commun- uh, the, the first place my music took off in any way was in the UK, um, because I don't know if you read like Mojo and Uncut. I mean, it, I, I think I once was on a plane, and I was like, "Does everyone on this plane have a four star review in Uncut?" Um, sure, almost everyone does. Um, I, I, whenever just, I wonder what Bob Dylan's up to, I'll read Mojo Magazine. Sure. You know, so they they were they were very supportive um, of my first album, and I was on tour opening for Martha Wainwright in Manchester, and something happened where I think REM's show got canceled that night for for health health reason of a band member. Well, the drummer was sick. That was earlier. Okay. That was um during like the Monster tour. Gotcha. Um this was in the early 2000s and Peter Buck ended up coming to the show that I was playing and he liked my music and asked me to open for the band. Who was in your band at that time? Though? Who were you touring with? Nobody. I was by myself. Oh, you're just by yourself. Mm-hmm. Acoustic guitar. Yeah, that's the, the majority of touring I've done in my life has been solo acoustic. Because I remember I saw you on Letterman one time, and I saw, and I think I, I don't think I knew you at the time, mm-hmm. but I was really excited that I saw Farmer Dave there. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Farmer Dave ended up in the band. <laughs> I love how it just it always comes, afford to take it just always music. comes out comes back. To Farmer Dave, so you so Peter Buck likes it, and then you're then you end up opening for REM in front of like a zillion people, though. Yeah, they were having these really large concerts in the UK in the summer of two thousand and five or four, and one of them was in Hyde Park, which was like it really did feel like one of those like you know like the famous Stones show after Brian Jones is dead and they released the Butterflies. It was one of those like a idyllic, uh, beautiful day in London, but there was 75,000 people there or something like that. And Farmer Dave and I and Neil Casal uh, uh, opened the show as a trio, kind of like a like a country rock trio. Uh, Neil plays drums, right? No, Neil no, played oh, guitar. Played there, was guitar. No, there were no drums. No drums. We probably should have brought drums. Yeah. Um, but we did not. Um, Jimmy Hay was unavailable. Jimmy Hay was unavailable. Aaron Spursky was not to be found. No. Both <laughs> they were, I'm sure they were off starting rad bands. Those two guys, like, if either one of those two guys are playing drums for you, your band is about to become, like, famous. Right. That's what I've always found. They're always, like, I mean, Jimmy was the first guy that I knew to play with Ariel Pink. Right. Aaron was the first guy I knew to play with Father John Misty. Like, they just have, like, such exquisite taste, you know? 
Yeah, Jimmy was. It's yeah, it's funny, man. I remember I saw the Shins in Detroit uh, right right when we were si- Sub Pop was signing the Fruit Bats, and I went to Detroit to I don't know what I went to Detroit for. They sent me to Detroit for something. I don't remember what. Oh, I was driving the Beachwood Sparks van back for them. That's oh, really? Was. Yeah, it comes back again. Yeah, uh, and I remember seeing. Uh, Beachwood Sparks play with the Shins and the Fruit Bats uh, and standing there with Jonathan Poneman who was on the trip with me and, or I, I should say I was on the trip with him. He was, he was taking me around. Uh, and him saying to me like, oh, we should just sign Jimmy Hay as himself and then we can just insert him into every band as yeah. the drummer. That's a really good concept. And then that would help. That never happened. No. Because almost, it's almost like A&R, what he was doing. He was just like picking the best possible bands and songwriters and playing with them. And- yeah. Well, I, and I remember I was in the hotel room later, and I said to, I said to Jimmy, hey, I said, uh, oh, I, I'm really stoked I got this uh, record by this band, Clear Light. Um, that was like an old, it was an L.A. band that was kind of like supposed to be the Doors, but the Doors became the Doors, and they were on the same, they were on Electra or whatever. I said, oh, I said, Jimmy, I, I got this uh, record by this band, Clearlight. I'm like super excited. He's, ah, you can find that anywhere for a dollar. Yeah. I rem- yeah, I remember <laughs> I once saw uh, Jimmy on the street, and he was pushing a stroller down the street. And I was like, you have a kid? And he's like, no, nah, this isn't my kid. I was like, all right. Uh, well, what are you up to? And uh, <laughs> he said, oh, well, these guys are sending me to Amsterdam to buy some records for their new barbecue restaurant. I said, okay, fair enough. You know, he's always on some, some other shit. As you and do you know who was cooking at that barbecue restaurant? You? Yeah. Dude, that wasn't even a setup. I swear to God, Donald Trump is really fucking shit up. I'm, gla- I'm glad I didn't say what I was about to say because I was going to call it like a dirtbag barbecue restaurant. <laughs> It was a dirtbag barbecue restaurant. I mean, it seemed like the proprietors were (laughs) dirtbags. I I mean, yeah, uh, they were. It was like one of the very few times the the proprietors came over to my house with a friend of a friend. And it's one of the very few times my lady was just like, these guys have got to (laughs) go. And they were serving food to people. Apparently so. I never tried it. I was always wary. There was well, I was I was I was one of the cooks there, uh, and uh, well, I mean, it was also staffed with members of Vietnam. Yeah, that's yeah, I was I, aware of that. Yeah. Um, and I remember one time Michael was uh, Michael from Vietnam was uh, he had a big beard. Yeah, and, Michael, I love Michael's. Oh, sweet, sweet guy. Yeah. yeah, of course. Zumi worked there. Oh like, yeah. Uh, everyone's listen. Shit happens, you know. Nobody's perfect, but uh, I remember. Uh, Michael had a big beard at the time, had like a, a piece of uh, macaroni and cheese stuck in his beard. Oh, man. And he was like... He was probably the, there for days. <laughs> he was one of the servers, you know? <laughs> and this dude comes in. A dude comes into the restaurant and sees the macaroni and cheese <laughs> stuck in his beard. And he goes to the guy. He's like, huh, getting high on your own supply, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I mean, this could be its own show, really, but... Uh, I just want to tell one. I'm a, my producer is telling me to not focus on the barbecue restaurant, but I, Jonathan likes this shit, so he can listen to it. Uh, another time, uh, there was a Yelp review 
where they were talking about uh, the seeing the owner uh, in the kitchen, like wearing like shorts and like no shoes. And he's like, big old boys back there, no shoes on, eating a rib. <laughs> yeah. Yelp review. I would imagine they never crested above a B grade on that. No, I think we got an A, and that just shows that the whole thing is just like the whole lettering system. Just FYI, everyone is just—it's a, a total racket. So don't don't trust it. I don't like to go to places that have an A. I, I prefer a B, huh? Especially if it's like a Asian food, I, I like only a little, get a B. You like a little taste a little, of the streets, a, a little, little grime. Uh-huh. I like a little real, a little funk, mm-hmm. if you will. So, are you living in LA at this time now? After your, after this. REM experience is, is, I was is still, LA your home now? I was still living in New York City then. Were, were you going out? With, were you and Jenny were together at this time? Uh, we were not. Um, well, it's kind of. I mean, you don't blurry. have to get into that. I mean, it's that's kind of blurry. That's your personal business. I'm just. I'm talking about it more because you guys make so much music together and sure. projects and stuff, and I don't mind talking about I don't my mind, girlfriend. I don't mind talking about it. Um, we we didn't like. Um, She's in the fucking room right now. <laughs> Your girlfriend's in Australia. Yeah, my girlfriend. My girlfriend's in Australia. Oh, um, good for her. Um, we didn't really start collaborating musically until 2006. Um, we were just talking about that the other day, that we're coming on the, up on the 10th, 10-year anniversary of writing music together. Um, I started collaborating her pr- with her pretty heavily when she first released her first solo record, Rabbit Her Coat. And that came out on Connor Oberst's Team Love uh, records on in 2006. And I remember they had hired a guitar player to be in the band. And he, he kind of boned it and left her kind of scrambling for a replacement. And he, he quit or something. He didn't quit. He just, he just was not the right guy right. for the, the gig for whatever reason. Sure. And so to replace that one man, she hired two men, me and Farmer Day. Wow. And we, that kind of, I was, I, st- I had my, f- my first record was still out and I was still touring it, but I believed in what she was doing so much. I loved the style of music that she had done on that, on that first record. So we ended up on stage together every night for over a year touring the world. And that kind of, was the beginning of us having a a creative relationship at least and started writing a ton of songs and it we just started writing together all the time and still writing by ourselves but kind of a style of songwriting that was unique to the two of us started to emerge and it would always be like well who's this song for is it for me is it for you and we would just kind of figure that out and then yeah, we've been writing together ever since. I was thinking about that earlier because I knew you were, we were doing this today and, and you brought it up just now, the deciding, like, is this song for me or is it for you uh-huh. is an interesting thing in, you know, in a relationship. Uh, but also, you know, you guys write for film. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, like, do you ever write a song and think, I got hired to write this as a song for a movie, but I really want it for myself. That's the feeling you want to have. Right. I think. But do you then hide that song and not give it to the people that hired you? I mean... And where do you hide it? 
Well, there are many places to hide songs. Uh, in, one one in, could argue most songs are hidden nowadays. Or in Michael from Vietnam's beard is a right, good place. Right, it could be. Yeah. Get high on your own supply. Um, well, I guess that's an interesting question. When I say it's the feeling you want to have, when you feel a possessiveness over a song, in my opinion, that's usually because you love the song and the song is of some quality. Um, if you actively want to give it away, you know, it means you're trying to create some distance from it almost. But because we've been developing this relationship where we were writing for one another, I think it allowed us to open our minds up to the fact that our songs could be sung by other people, which has led to us writing songs for these movies, which we've been doing for the past few years now. Right. And that has been one of the biggest kind of creative developments for me has been writing songs for films because you get a script and you get that script and you no longer have to draw from exclusively within yourself to write the song. You now have these developed characters that are on the page who have their own relationships, their own histories, and you get to use that as ammunition in the song. Sure. So when we met with Meryl Streep to write for her new film, uh, we had a meeting with her before we wrote the song. Right. And we read the script before we wrote the song. So, and we talked to Jonathan Demi, the director, before we wrote the song. So although Jenny and I wrote the song, it's very much a collaboration and a reaction to the conversations we had and, and uh, a reaction to Diablo Cody's script. And I remember meeting with Meryl in New York and... She said, she was talking about creating her character, Ricky Rendazzo, who's the character in her new film. What's the movie called? It's called Ricky and the Flash. Okay, right. I saw the poster the other day. Um, so she's Ricky Rendazzo in the movie. Um, and she uh, said, I want her to be scratchy. And even a word like that, scratchy, like that, as a songwriter, that really makes your mind start churning around. Like, okay. And then you read the script and you... You see that she, uh, her character, voted for Bush, um, and it's not this. So you can tell that this woman's maybe a little harder edged and maybe not more of an emotional person than an intellectual person, for example. Mm -hmm. And that very much influences the kind of song that you would write for a person like that. Wow. Right. I, I mean, when I'm writing a song, sometimes if it's about like you know. Uh, a chud monster or a, uh, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, liquid virus that kills half the population, I'll then Google that to see if I can come up with some lyrics that rhyme, words that rhyme with death or disease. Or, sure. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's the same thing. It's, it's scratchy. It's very, very much the same thing. <laughs> very similar uh, artistic endeavor. So, I mean, it's fascinating to think, like, uh, just having that in front of you that you have to now go back and sit down and write. Do you feel like pressured to do this? Like to yeah. get, you're writing a music for Meryl Streep to now sing. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, it, do you feel the pressure of that? Uh, yes, but I will say, and I'm sure you identify with this as a songwriter, pressure can be a gift and can be the most helpful thing 
in actually getting something done. Right. Because there's so many idle hours as a songwriter and there's a lot of inertia that builds up. And to know that a film is shooting in the fall and you've got the summer to write a song, yeah, that's, for me at least, I've always loved having something hanging over me like that because sure. it forces me to work. You have the studio time booked. Yeah. Like, you've got to figure it out. Exactly. So when you get in there, you're ready, you know? Yeah, so we had a finite amount of time to write the song, and we wrote it relatively quickly, and we decided to make it a song that would would work, obviously, just as a song in the world, but that it should have... To us, we wanted to kind of insert a message of solidarity between Meryl's character, Ricky, and her daughter's character, who have kind of a, co- a major conflict in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on its face, it looks and sounds like a drinking song. It's called Cold One. So it's just about having a cold one. But it's also about coldness and emotional distance between people and uh, things like that. Double meaning. Did you get into writing the music for films before acting, or did you start acting and that's how you got into the, they knew to hit you up for music? I don't think one was necessarily related to the other. I think I was cast and walked the line when I was very young. Um, how did that happen? Um, it's rather embarrassing. Um, in a way, uh, there used to be a magazine called L Girl, mm-hmm. and it was like the teen uh, version of L magazine, like how you learn how to become viciously materialistic as a young girl before you actually start reading L. Right. Um, so they did a list every year of the fifty hottest rockers, mm-hmm. and uh, right. I, I don't. Think I, 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 I found myself. Uh, I submitted myself. To you that. did, huh? Yeah, <laughs> a number of times. Yeah, well, you got to kind of. There's a campaign around it, you know. You got to kind of play ball. Yeah, um, I ran out of funds. I I found myself on this list, and the only reason I'm telling the story is because the producer of the of the film, Kathy Conrad, I believe, had had uh, bought a bunch of magazines and was looking through and was looking through magazines to try and find young musicians to cast as the musicians and walk the line. And I think they were of the mind that they wanted real musicians rather than actors, or musicians first, actors second. Sure. Um, And I think she found that magazine and saw me and called me for the part of Roy Orbison. And I read for it, and I got it. And I filmed that movie. Uh, That's all well and good. What number were you on? Number two. Number two? Number two. Out of 50? Out of 50. Who was number one? I mean, I think it it should come as no surprise that it was... Justin Bieber. Adam Levine. Bieber was in short pants. Well, you know, it depends on... It's L girl, right? Not yeah. L man, woman. He was, more, he was more like an L sperm. At <laughs> okay. Adam Levine? Adam Levine was number one. Oh, Where okay. he remains, you know. Yeah, he's st- so. still there. Uh, uh, who was number 50? Oh, who cares? I don't know. Right. It was not Paul Goddard from Atlanta Rhythm Section. I don't think. <laughs> the bass player... Known as the Blob, they called him. I don't know him. No, I know you don't. But he was—he shows up in a previous episode of Jet Bangers Ball. So I wanted to give a shout out again to Paul Goddard. Um, so, so I was in that film, and what was that? How was that though? I mean, you got fucking 
it's a Johnny Cash film, so you must be thrilled. Like, it's music. Oh, it was totally thrilling. And uh, from every aspect, I got to move to Memphis, Tennessee, for a, a couple months, which is still one of my favorite places, and I don't think I would have ever gotten to know a place like that if it had not been for that. And just to watch an actor like Joaquin Phoenix, like, get ready for his scenes and work with him and... I guess it's pop. It's it's like well known. They always call him method or whatever. I don't really know what that means totally. I have an idea of what it means, but I guess because we were supposed to be this crew of Elvis Presley, Roy Orbison, Johnny Cash, uh, the Jerry. traveling Wilburys. <laughs> that's what that's what it is, right? Uh, one yeah. One no, but you were guys were like supposed to be friends. Supposed in the movie. to be friends. Like, so he in, he really embraced that, and so we really did like terrorize Memphis at by night, which was really, really fun. Um, and just to watch an actor like that work and watch Reese Witherspoon work, she was so incredible. You guys would go out in Memphis as characters? No. Oh, okay. No. I mean, we would, we would shower and then go out. Got it. I know. get it. Yeah. Um, and then got to work in the studio because we had to make the music as well. Got to work with T-Bone Burnett in the studio to make the soundtrack. So all in all, it was just, my role is relatively small in the film, but it was a huge experience for me. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like a dream come true to be number two on L Girls magazine list. I would, my mom would be so proud if I ever, I could ever do that. Um, so you continue acting, you continue making music. I mean, where, like, now, now it almost like just coincides. It's just one, right? It's it's not. For, how do yeah. you look at it? Like, do um, you s- I just look at it as. Trying. You never wanted to be an actor. It was not something that I envisioned for myself. No, I mean, I think everybody secretly wants to be in the movies or something like that. Sure, you know, a kind of a vague desire, but right. it was never something that I pursued and or envisioned for myself. Really, I always thought of myself as a songwriter and musician, but. But then you move to L.A. and it's like it's kind of like it's so around you. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, truth be told, you know, you and I were and or are at some point in acting class together. That's true. So are you still there? Yeah, sometimes. I need to go back. Uh, but, you know, you get in this town and and if you do love, I you know, I love movies and, and I love music. And, you know, there obviously there's things around those that that are lame or whatever and you can call i'm 35 i don't give a shit now what happens but you know you have this like this town sort of engulfs your mind if you have an interest in 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 film you know sure and i think for me i just personally i just see myself as a working artist and i try and remain open to whatever opportunity arises knowing that it all feeds the one creative force within you you know, it, acting can lead you to development as a songwriter. Songwriting can lead you, you know, can develop you as an actor. I think it all feeds itself. And and so, I guess, I guess, I guess you sort of answer the question. But like in this in this new movie, this it, what's the new movie called? Where with the Elvis band in it? Oh well, my my. I mean, I don't even know if. I haven't even seen the film. I don't even know if I'm in it in, in any way. You don't even know where. Well, I mean, I'm sure there's like a shot of me playing in it or anything. But that was, I mean, I didn't have any dialogue or anything like that. We were just Elvis's makeshift band. And, and but how does that sort of come about though? Like you just friends of friends. Like... Exactly. Yeah. It's well, my friends making a movie, and 
he needs some dudes to be Elvis's band, and so you just it just happens, you know. Cool. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was really cool to see Ron Livingston channel Elvis Presley. He used to come into another restaurant that I worked at, uh-huh. but it was a much like cleaner sort. It was a vegetarian restaurant actually, and he used to come in there, and it was a much different experience. Right. Yeah. So I. I just I want to point that out that I didn't always just I didn't only work. Just so you know, in the in the barbecue place, <laughs> right? No, you've had a very rich kind of uh, arc when it comes to cuisine. So, <clears throat> it, what's next then musically? Because I mean, do, do you ever feel like the the the, mu- the movie thing kind of pulls you away from like the original focus? Though, no, I don't. Um, the goal is to keep making music, and I'm—I was—I'd say about two thirds done with the writing of a new album, of, of a solo album. Because you're—you have a—you're on a different label now. Like I'm on no label now. You're on no label now. Yeah, the—I uh, put out a record in 2013 called Good Graces on a label called SQE, but that um, label—it's uh, its like the next step beyond streaming. It's when our label actually vaporizes into thin air. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean that's that's what's that's kind of like what we we try to get at here. You know that's what's going to happen, you know, after streaming it's vapor. I it, no, I mean there was a fucking thing at uh Sub Pop where they were trying to sell like some it was like a joke they made where they were trying to sell like air or something like a oh, like really? a, like an invisible MP3 or I can't even remember what the thing was, but I mean I mean what do you do then like you get dropped by Warner Brothers or whatever, mm-hmm. and and not and through no fault of your own because now people you, you've licensed music to TV shows you're making them money, and uh, and it's become this sort of like cult hit record. You, you said so yourself, you know, as far as like people that's people really like the weirdness of this first album. But at some point, people change, and these people are there to like justify their existences, and then these people lose their jobs, and maybe the people that were the big Jonathan Rice fans don't work there anymore. Yeah, I mean... So you have to navigate this on your own, because it's... Yeah, you just have to navigate it on your own, and, and I mean, not to sound too like hippy-dippy about it, but you have to do the work for the work's sake. And I've, I consider myself to have had like a very good career and a really fortunate career but the kind of music that I'm making the kind of music that satisfies me and that I need to make is is a major label in 2015 the right place for that music I don't I don't think so so I, I kind of understand um but yeah I guess I guess I don't really worry about it that much it changes so quickly it has changed so seismically the entire landscape of our industry that it's it's kind of i don't want to say it's useless to fight against it but you have to accept it and navigate it as best you can and there are very like good ways to get your music to people just yourself if you if if need be but i'm confident i'll find more than just myself to put out my next one you know um but if you are, a, you know, if you're a record label out there, you know, we could talk turkey. He was number two on the hottest 50 years ago. Years ago. 
Um, you know, I don't know where I would I don't stand know. Now. If I had to guess now, yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, top ten. Well, for me, really, for you, yeah, for me. You're well, thanks very much. You're uh, you're right. Uh, well, you're top ten. You'll always be top ten. But the point is, we're making this to make it, and you got to do the work because you want to do the work, and that's what we're doing here today. We're doing the work, sure, to do the work, yeah, and so that you don't have to do the work. And I appreciate you being here and doing the work with me. I appreciate doing the work with you too, bud. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, man. All right, that was Jonathan Rice. That was a lot of fun. I want to thank all of you guys for listening. Uh, I want to thank Jonathan for coming on the show. I always forget how fucking funny he is. Uh, I love that uh, dry Scottish sense of humor. Is it a Scottish sense of humor? I don't know what it is, but it, it cracks me up. Anyways, thanks to Green Street. As always, this is not a pipe. We're recorded here in beautiful Mid-Wilshire, Los Angeles, California. Our producer is Jessica Hundley. Our producer engineer is Nicholas Fahey. And thank you, the listeners, for tuning in to Jed Banger's Ball. I'll see you next time. Peace!